Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we are going to look at one of the more beloved first-person shooters of all time, that being Duke Nukem 3D, which was a first-person shooter developed by 3D Realms and published by FormGen, released in 1996 for the MS-DOS computer platform and eventually ported to a ton of other platforms, as many games of the time often were. Before we start talking about the game itself, as is customary, a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number six of the podcast. I'm excited. I'm excited every time I record an episode. This has just been a ton of fun. I have loved being able to revisit the games of my youth, and in some instances, visiting new games that existed in my youth, but that for whatever reason, I didn't play. So I've been having an absolute blast. I hope you guys are all as well. I do want to build a community around this podcast. We are starting to see some growth out there, which is awesome. I always love talking about classic games or just gaming in general, technology, all that good stuff. So if you would like to talk with me, I do have a couple ways you can do that. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. And I also have a Twitter handle, which is at classicgamingt. So feel free to reach out if you have comments, feedback, suggestions, or just want to talk. I am around and I do enjoy talking with all of you. For anybody who is new, welcome. We'll go over real quickly what the anatomy of an episode is. This is pretty much the structure of every single episode that you'll hear of the podcast, barring some exceptions. I do have some ideas to switch things up occasionally in the future. But for the most part, we will follow the same general structure. And that is, first, we will talk history. We'll talk about the historical context of any of the games that we're discussing. And then we will move into a pseudo-review sort of section. And I say pseudo-review because... It's not going to be like a scoring system. It's not like you're going to get a score out of 10 or five stars or anything like that. But we will talk about the kinds of stuff that reviews typically touch upon. Things like graphics, sound and music, narrative and story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and the overall feel. And all of that is done so that we can reach a verdict and assign the game to one of several categories. And remember, this is all about how do these games feel to play today? They may have felt a certain way back when they were released, but do they hold up? Are they really a game you should revisit today? And to do that, the verdict that we will apply will be one of four different categories. The first and the top of the top. These are the games that are just as good today as they were 30 years ago. These are our Pantheon entries. That means if something reaches the Pantheon of classic gaming, you should absolutely play this game. It is that darn good. It is a true classic, and I highly recommend you try it out. Just below the Pantheon, still good games, but not quite Pantheon level, are the Golden Oldies. These are games where you should probably play it. I mean, if you don't like the genre, your mileage may vary, but if you have nostalgia for the game itself, absolutely play it. If you enjoy the genre, you should absolutely play it. If you don't, I mean, it's still a good game, but you may not enjoy it quite as much. Moving down from the Golden Oldies, we have our Mediocre Mentions. These are games that I can't really recommend. You might have a good time, or you might just want to play it because you want to experience the game or any game of a particular genre, but these are games where 
I can't really recommend it. They probably haven't aged all that well, or maybe they weren't that great to begin with, but I do not recommend you necessarily go out of your way to play it. And then, of course, the final category are the footnotes. These are games that are best left to history. They may have aged incredibly poorly, or they may have just not been great to begin with. I've played these games, so you don't have to. If you want to play them, by all means, go ahead. I can't control you, nor would I want to. But these are the experiences that, for whatever reason, probably don't warrant an additional playthrough or a playthrough here in 2022, as opposed to when they may have been released back in whenever that was. So that's the general anatomy of an episode. We're now going to start talking about the game of the day, or the game of the episode, I guess, more accurately. And that is Duke Nukem 3D which was a first-person shooter developed by 3D Realms and released in 1996 for DOS, as well as a bunch of other platforms moving forward. Now, here's the thing about Duke 3D. You can't talk about just Duke Nukem 3D without first talking about the creation of Duke Nukem himself, because Duke Nukem 3D was not the first time that Duke Nukem appeared in a game. So to do this, to start talking about Duke Nukem, we have to actually take a trip back into the early 1980s. And we're going to focus on a couple of people. And as oftentimes happens, these are a couple of people that meet in a computer lab because that's just, I guess, what happened in the 80s. People just met in computer labs and they started companies and stuff like that. But no different here. We're talking about Scott Miller and George Broussard. They both met at their high school computer lab back in the early 80s. And they both had a fondness for computer games and they really wanted to try their hand at creating them. Now, unlike some of these stories where these people meet and they immediately strike up a partnership and they start start working on games together or create their own company, Scott Miller and George Broussard didn't immediately set out to start working with each other. They actually went their separate ways for a few years. Scott Miller did try to do the whole college thing, but eventually he decided he'd make a better career simply working on video games So he actually dropped out of college to pursue that dream. And he started working as a solo developer, trying to develop some games himself. Uh, The general style of the games that he was making, though, coupled with the fact that he was effectively a college dropout, made publishers very hesitant to publish his work. So he had created games, but he actually couldn't get them on the marketplace. So what does... uh, self-starting entrepreneur type do, he started looking at how to self-publish his own titles, and he eventually decided on a model where he would offer a portion of a game for free, oftentimes online via bulletin boards, which for anybody who is unaware, bulletin boards are kind of the precursor to forums on the internet, internet today, but albeit with some additional functionality. Basically, if you were downloading something from the internet way back when, you were probably on a bulletin board of some sort, and they always had titles like alt.binaries.blah-blah-blah, whatever the blah-blah-blah was, was usually the content or the type that you were looking at. But those were the ways you would get downloads back in uh, the pre-World Wide Web kind of uh, technology. I believe bulletin boards still exist, actually, but I don't know. I, I don't think there's a whole heck of a lot of people that still use them for normal distribution of files. Regardless, 
Miller would offer his games or would offer portions of his game for free on these online systems. And after the player would complete the free portion of the game, they'd then be asked to register and pay for the remainder of the game if they liked it and they wanted to continue to experience the rest of the game. This model, some of you might realize, came to be known as Shareware, which was a major driving force in PC gaming in the late 80s and early 90s. And around the whole Shareware concept, Miller was a pioneer. Now, there were other licensed kind of things out there. There were subscription magazines that would give parts of games out. There were other similar distribution models, but Miller really took it to the next level. And he is definitely somebody who really pushed the shareware concept. And this actually led up until 1987, where Miller had already been working with the shareware model for some time. And he founded a company called Apogee Software Productions. Apogee Software would go on to be a significant publisher of PC games. And they really focused on this shareware model where you could offer or a developer could offer, say, the first episode of a game. So think about a game like Doom or or for that matter, Duke Nukem. But we'll leave Duke Nukem for a second. Think about a game like Doom where you would have different episodes. You'd have three episodes that were effectively collections of levels and they were independent from each other. With Shareware, developers would release their first episode for free. Sometimes you'd have to buy it in a store for like five bucks on a floppy disk, which is actually tangentially how I got my first copy of Doom back when it was originally released. Regardless, they would release that first episode and then you would send in a registration fee or call in and pay a registration fee and then they would mail you. Oftentimes they would actually physically mail you the remainder of the game, the full game with all of the episodes. So Apogee Software was a big publisher of games that could be sold via the shareware model. During this time, any internal development by Apogee was effectively still a solo effort by Miller. So he was still working on his own games from a development standpoint, while he was also working to develop publishing relationships with a number of other smaller development studios who could all adhere to the shareware model for their games. Interestingly, George Broussard, who was the individual that Miller had met back at the high school computer lab, was one of those individuals who was just a small time developer. He was kind of working solo on his own titles. Um, He was actually developing solo games under the Micro FX label, if anybody had heard of that previously. And there was another programmer who Miller started to work with pretty closely. His name was Todd Replogle. And he was another person who was developing his own solo games as well. They all kind of struck up a partnership and Apogee Software would publish a number of the games that both Broussard and Replogle would be working on. I do want to take a mild tangent here to the story of Duke Nukem because Scott Miller was actually a pretty significant figure in computer gaming back around the time. He was actually instrumental in encouraging John Carmack and John Romero, who many might realize are some of the founding fathers of id Software and the creators of Doom, along with Wolfenstein 3D and a number of other games. Uh, But he encouraged John Carmack and John Romero, along with some other developers from Soft Disk Magazine, which was the company or the magazine that Carmack and Romero were working on before they developed id Software, Miller was instrumental in actually encouraging those guys to branch off from the magazine 
and develop their own intellectual property, their own game, which would eventually become the Commander Keen series back in 1990. And that also led directly to the formation of the company id Software, which basically became synonymous with first-person shooters in the 90s and continues to be synonymous with first-person shooters even to this day. Going back to the story around Duke Nukem, what started as a solo company, so Apogee Software, with publishing relationships, would eventually add actual staff. It stopped being just a solo gig by Scott Miller, and he would hire some of the people that he was partnering with, with two of the first employees that were added to the actual staff being Todd Replogle and George Broussard, the two individuals we were just talking about that had struck up a pretty strong partnership from a publishing perspective with Apogee Software. Now that the company was growing, they had to decide what to focus on, and they started to look at creating a side-scrolling platform action game in a style similar to Commander Keen because they had uh, worked with id Software or with John Carmack and John Romero to help them create Commander Keen, at least to encourage them to branch off on their own. But they didn't want to just copy Commander Keen. They wanted to create a game that was more, and I'll use the, the term in quotes, metal than what Commander Keen would be. And interestingly enough, the original title for this game, the original working title, was actually Heavy Metal. Uh, now, I do want to talk real quickly about side-scrolling games on computers because there is some historical context here that I think is important. A lot of times when people think about side-scrolling games, they may think about the traditional console kind of side-scrollers like Super Mario Brothers or Contra or any other kinds of side-scrolling games that were very popular on systems like the Nintendo Entertainment System back in the 80s to early 90s. And you might take for granted that you could just create a side-scrolling game anywhere and have it actually work. But in reality, that wasn't always the case. It turns out that home consoles like the Nintendo Entertainment System had specialized hardware that made it much simpler to create smooth side-scrolling kinds of backgrounds than what was available or what was, was possible on computers at the time. So a lot of people took it for granted that a side-scrolling game is a side-scrolling game. They exist on home consoles. It should be easy enough to create that on computers. That just wasn't the case. And you can kind of think of the difference if you look at a couple of classic console games, and we could do a quick compare here. So Super Mario Brothers, as an example, is kind of the quintessential side-scroller from the 80s. You have your character, you have a bunch of sprites, you can move Mario across the screen, and as you move, the screen smoothly scrolls over to the side, and you can move backwards and forwards, and in some cases even up and down, and it all moves nice and smooth. You have another game on the NES was The Legend of Zelda, which is obviously another incredibly popular game, incredibly popular series. When you would move to the side of the screen with Link, the screen would not be a smooth transition. It's not like the world continuously loaded, but basically the screen you were on would shift over and the other screen that you were navigating to would come over and then become the main focused screen that you were on. Computer games of the time primarily used scrolling that was like The Legend of Zelda, in that they didn't have smooth scrolling that would allow you to move through a level without, for lack of a better term, loading screens, so to speak, between 
the different screens and the different areas. John Carmack, who we know is part of id Software, pioneered a way to make smooth side-scrolling, like the Super Mario Brothers games, possible, rather than doing full-screen loads. He created a process that would allow that to happen on computers. And interestingly, he actually, or id Software actually created a demo of Super Mario Brothers on computer, which people thought was insane, that it was even a possibility. They sent it to Nintendo, and Nintendo ultimately didn't didn't go with it. They didn't want to publish a port of Super Mario over on the computers. But with that technology, with that understanding of how to create that smooth side-scrolling kind of experience, John Carmack and the rest of its software went on to create Commander Keen. So going back over to 3D Realms, Todd Replogel, who was one of the hires that Scott Miller had made to 3D Realms, was tasked with developing similar technology for Apogee's upcoming action title, which, like we said, was called Heavy Metal at the time, but he needed a bit of help. So 3D Realms was able to leverage the prior publishing relationship that they had with id Software, and Replogel actually received assistance from John Carmack to develop parts of the game engine that would eventually become this action side-scroller, which people can probably guess, is uh, Duke Nukem. John Carmack, by the way, absolute genius programmer. He remains a genius programmer today. I think he's focused primarily now on VR, at least the last I had known, he was focused primarily on virtual reality and augmented reality kinds of applications. But John Carmack was and is an absolute genius. And if you ever have an opportunity to read about Carmack, you really should because the stuff that he created He's basically the one of the founders of a lot of the technology that we all take for granted today with computers. Anyway, going back, I know I'm going on a bunch of tangents here, but there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens around this time in computer technology. So going back to 3D Realms, they had this side-scrolling platform game, but Scott Miller didn't really like the title. He didn't think that the title Heavy Metal was going to be a strong enough title, and he suggested copying something that would often happen with comic books, which is naming the game after the main character of the game rather than trying to create some arbitrary title that wasn't necessarily tied to the game itself. And that is how the character and the name of the game, Duke Nukem, was born. That first Duke Nukem title was released in 1991. It would be followed a couple years later by a sequel. So in 1993, Duke Nukem 2 came out it was bigger and better than the original release but a lot can change in two years especially in the computer technology of the time a lot changes in a very short period of time so although duke nukem and duke nukem 2 were well received uh there was a new technology that was beginning to take hold and side scrolling platform action games weren't quite the focus or weren't quite the flavor of the day anymore. And that's where we shift and we start talking about the first person shooter genre. And to talk about first person shooters, we do have to talk about id Software because they were one of the pioneers in first person shooters. They were not the first. So first person shooters existed before id Software entered the industry. But id was was arguably the best developer of first person shooters. They created Wolfenstein 3D, which, by the way, was also published by Apogee Software. 
There were some offshoots of the Wolfenstein 3D technology and engine, like Shadowcaster, which is a first-person sort of shooter, sort of action RPG kind of game, which is actually pretty, pretty great in its own right. We'll probably talk about that at some point. Of course, Doom, which was the natural evolution of Wolfenstein that id Software created themselves. You have Dark Forces, which was first-person shooter Star Wars, which was released by LucasArts in the early 90s. There were a ton of first-person shooters that were released at the time. And really, once Doom hit, once Doom hit the map, everybody wanted to create first-person shooters. And you saw such a proliferation of first-person shooter titles from that point on. It became the focus of the PC gaming industry. It was just, it was like a wildfire. And it just spread. After Doom, everybody wanted to get in the first-person shooter market. So the internal team at Apogee had began experimenting on various styles of games, and one of those styles was three-dimensional as opposed to the traditional 2D graphics that they had been working on at the time. And Scott Miller wanted to differentiate internal to the company what types of games they were working on, and they wanted to create brand awareness around the different kinds of titles that they were working on. So at the time, remember, the company was called Apogee Software, In 1994, with the shift to focus more so on three-dimensional graphics, Apogee was rebranded as 3D Realms. Under that new name, the team would publish the early 3D flight combat game Terminal Velocity, which was an early, I believe it had 3D acceleration, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong about that, but I remember... So quick story about Terminal Velocity. I remember going to computer shows back in the 90s. Terminal Velocity was one of those games that you would see plastered on monitors everywhere because of how fast-paced it was, how awesome the graphics looked. It was one of those things that would sell computer technology or computer systems to people who may not necessarily understand what computers were just because it looked so good. Anyway, After Terminal Velocity was published, 3D Realms started to think about what the first title was going to be that they would internally develop. So naturally, they looked into their back catalog to see what might make sense, and they decided that they were going to revolve their Duke Nukem character, the Duke Nukem series, into a 3D first-person shooter. So with that goal, they had to decide what engine to use for the game, and at the time, there were a couple of options. One and kind of the the de facto ruler of all, for lack of a better phrase, was the id Software id Tech engine, which was developed by John Carmack. It was pretty much the standard for first-person shooters, and id would continue to license their technology basically indefinitely uh, into the future. But John Carmack wasn't the only engine developer in town. There was actually somebody who was direct competition to Carmack, and his name was Ken Silverman. He was another very talented developer who had also developed his own 3D engines. Uh, The first one that he created was used in his own game, which was entitled Ken's Labyrinth, which was very similar. The engine and the features were very similar to the Wolfenstein 3D engine. And if you ever look at a YouTube video looking at Ken's Labyrinth, you could certainly see where the inspiration came from. It was very much a 
a Wolfenstein 3D-like game. The engine had a lot of similar features, but Silverman also implemented a couple of new features, most prominently much more environmental interactions with items that were able to be used in the game world. So think about things like slot machines. In games like Wolfenstein 3D or Doom, you didn't really have environmental interactions. Sure, you had secret rooms and you had barrels that can explode, but it wasn't like you could actually interact with an item and have the item do something. Whereas in Silverman's engine, you actually had objects that you could interact with, like slot machines. You could play a slot machine in the game and the slot machine would actually work. They just didn't have that technology or that feature wasn't built into the id software engines of the time. So 3D Realms decided to contract with Ken Silverman to develop an even more advanced version of that original 3D engine that he had put in place for Ken's Labyrinth. So Silverman began working on what would eventually become the Build Engine. And that's probably familiar to a number of you because the Build Engine would become synonymous with 3D Realms and first-person shooters in the mid to late 90s. Duke Nukem 3D was one of the first games to use the engine, and that was certainly the game that put it on the map. But there would be a ton of first-person shooters that would eventually use and evolve the build engine and the technology behind it. Games like Redneck Rampage, Shadow Warrior, Blood, and a bunch more. Even today, there are new build engine games being released that, that very accurately capture the feeling of playing these games from the mid-90s, which is kind of awesome that there's still people actively developing for the build engine. That just, to me, kind of blows my mind a little bit that uh, people are still making games for an engine that was literally created back in the mid-90s. So with the engine selected, the team now had to focus on how to evolve Duke Nukem from his two-dimensional heritage into a three-dimensional world. And they also had to figure out how to distinguish itself, or how to distinguish the game, from other first-person shooters of the time. Because like we said, there were a lot of first-person shooter releases. Everybody was making first-person shooters around this time. So the goal was to have at least the same features as Doom. Doom basically reset the industry as it related to first-person shooters. And and like I said, from that point on, first-person shooters were always going to be a thing. So 3D Realms wanted to at least have feature parity with Doom, but then they wanted to add additional features on top of that. They wanted to focus more so on interactive environments. And one of the ways they did that, or one of the examples from Duke Nukem 3D, is the pool table that you can actually play and knock the balls around and try to get them into the pockets, which I actually spent a little bit of time just playing pool one time because I thought it was kind of awesome. Uh, They also added sloped floors, which Doom couldn't do. If you ever go back and play the original Doom, every single floor in Doom was perfectly flat. And you may say, but wait, there were stairs and things like that. Well, yeah, but they were actually just rectangles. It wasn't a sloped surface. Duke Nukem 3D and the build engine would include sloped surfaces or sloped floors in the game. So it created a much more natural kind of feel to the game world. There were also, in Duke Nukem 3D, moving platforms. You could jump. There was verticality. There was the jetpack in the game that you could use to reach higher in levels, and they played around with some of those different vertical elements of levels to be able to have have, uh, rooms and different exploration areas where you could only get to with a jetpack. So these features were all built into the build engine, and they did not exist primarily in the id software engine but in a lot of other engines of the time they just didn't exist so the build engine was actually quite advanced for what they were trying to do now there were some other features 
that 3D Realms decided to include in Duke Nukem 3D that would help distinguish it from the other games that were being released at the time. So there's a few of these. I want to go through them each in a little bit of detail. The first is all around world realism. If you look at most first-person shooters that were releasing around this time, many of them would take place on alien worlds or demonic hellscapes or just... they. It, it wasn't set in the real world. Duke Nukem 3D changed all that. They decided that they wanted to use real-world locations like bars and cities, office buildings, and make it feel like you were actually in a real world, albeit obviously in a computer game. Uh, Duke Nukem 3D would also use a ton of pop culture references and parodies of popular movies and television shows. So they added a lot of comedy to the game. And with the realism of the game world, they also added a feeling of to a degree realism, not necessarily in the controls of the game because you're still blowing up aliens. But at the end of the day, you're in the real world. You're walking around Los Angeles as opposed to a unrealistic or I'll say a uh, futuristic Mars base as an example. So they really did take the realism of their game world to a different level in comparison to some other games of the time. Duke Nukem 3D also had edgier content than what a lot of games were that we would look at around that time. Certainly violence was pervasive across first person shooters. If you were making a first person shooter, it was probably violent. You probably had blood and gibs and things like that. Gibs or jibs? I'm not sure. Well, in any event, you had things that blow up and it was a lot of gore and a lot of violence. The team behind Duke Nukem 3D wanted to recreate the feeling of the 80s macho action movies, like what you might see Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone star in. So they decided to not only increase the violence and really double down on the gore, but they also wanted to include riskier or risque elements like uh, more sexual kinds of elements, strippers that you could offer money to so that they would dance for you and other forms of, of pixelated nudity. There really wasn't that much, by the way. I mean, there was definitely some more uh, mature elements there from a sexual perspective. It was not terribly risque at the end of the day. And besides, most of the graphics were really pixelated anyway. So yes, you could kind of understand what they were going for, but a lot of times people get spun up over this stuff and they don't really understand or they don't really experience for themselves what the actual experience is. Regardless, team behind Duke Nukem wanted to make sure they included some edgier content. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, 3D Realms wanted to have a main character that actually had character. Once again, most first-person shooters of the time had an undeveloped silent protagonist. Think about Doomguy. I mean, his name is literally Doom Guy. Like, how more generic can you get? You had that same kind of situation with many of the first-person shooters of the time. The one I will say that's a minor deviation there would be Dark Forces, where you actually had a named character that would go on to star in a bunch of other Star Wars games beyond that. But other than Dark Forces, most first-person shooters had a silent, undeveloped, unnamed kind of protagonist. Later in the development for Duke Nukem 3D, George Broussard had decided that this had to change. They had to have a character that was actually voiced and that would be a true character in the game. And Broussard wanted a voice for Duke that was going to be similar to Ben from Full Throttle. Full Throttle being a LucasArts point-and-click adventure game that released in 1995. And he had a very 
gruff, kind of deep, manly voice that Broussard wanted to mimic for Duke Nukem 3D. He thought that it would fit nicely with the action movie heritage of the game. And the team had decided that they wanted the main character to be able to speak, but not just speak. They wanted to really focus on delivering some iconic one-liners throughout the game. And that's, once again, driving or, or pulling from the action movie roots that Duke Nukem kind of evolved from. So they would settle on recording Duke's voice from a radio DJ that was uh, John St. John. So he was a radio DJ that somebody had recommended. Hey, we know this guy that we think would be perfect for providing the voice, the kind of voice that you're looking for. And John St. John got got the job and he would forever from that point on be Duke Nukem. And uh, if you ever hear him talk normally, he does have a deep voice, but he certainly is. He certainly doesn't sound just like Duke. So he's certainly putting on a voice for the character, but it works. I mean, I couldn't think of any other voice for Duke Nukem than what John St. John has done for the game. With those elements in place and a $300,000 budget, the team would go on to create a game that would become the face of first-person shooters for years to come. Duke Nukem 3D, when it was released, pretty much got universal acclaim, both from critics as well as players. There was praise for the game's graphics, the music, the overall voice acting and performance, and just the character of Duke. Uh, It just got so many good reviews, and everybody absolutely loved it. There was some controversy around some of the edgier portions of the game, especially the game's portrayal of women. Um, So as was usual at the time, the game would receive various censored versions across different territories around the world. Some countries would outright ban it because they thought it was immoral, but it did kind of follow the same, same kind of path as other mature rated games where there were definitely some uh, hurdles that it had to go over to pass over in order to be released across the world. None of that though, served to reduce the overall impact of the game. It would go on to sell 3.5 million copies over its lifetime and get ported to a ton of different platforms. And this I found interesting. Some of the ports were really strangely specific. We talked a little bit about ports before, but basically a port is when somebody takes a game that was designed for one platform or one system and they manipulate it so that it's playable on another platform or another system. So think about taking a game that was originally developed for the computer and enabling it to be played on, say, the Super Nintendo or the Sega Genesis. It can't use the same exact code because each of those consoles runs on its own platform and has its own expectations around code and how games are supposed to be constructed. But there are people that can take that base foundational game and translate it into something that those systems can understand. So that's a port. Uh, Duke Nukem 3D got really specific ports in some instances. So I want to talk a little bit about the Sega Genesis version, which I didn't even realize there was a Sega Genesis version. Remember, Sega Genesis, 16-bit system. In 1998, so this is well past the point where Sega Genesis was a really front-running console. In 1998, in South America, there was a Duke Nukem 3D released. So that's why I was saying this is very specific. Literally a single continent, a single location, in 1998, well beyond the date where Sega Genesis was supremely relevant, 
they would release a game, Duke Nukem 3D, a port of Duke Nukem 3D. It had incredibly downgraded graphics, and it only contained the second episode of the full game's release. So it didn't even have the full game. It had a, the second episode, degraded graphics, released way late in the console's life cycle, and only in South America. It was really strange, that specificity. There were some other examples, too, of really specific ports of Duke Nukem 3D. There were also some more standard ports that happened as you would expect more traditional kinds of ports to different systems. So Duke Nukem would continue to have ports, expansion packs, and spinoffs in the years that would follow its initial release, including a return to side-scrolling action games, uh, which Duke did come back in the Manhattan Project, and I think there were one or two other side-scrolling action games that Duke Nukem would star in. There were also new first-person shooter level packs that would be included and could act as expansion packs for the original game. And there were even official re-releases, like the Atomic Edition, which was released in late 1996, and that included a new fourth full episode for the main game. Normally, the original game had three episodes in it. Atomic Edition added a fourth episode that you can play through as part of your experience. 3D Realms knew that they wanted to keep working on Duke Nukem games, And when you beat Duke Nukem 3D, at least the Atomic Edition, which was the version that I had played, you're presented with a screen at the end that tells you that a sequel to Duke Nukem 3D would be coming soon. And I can only imagine gamers at the time beating this awesome game and they see this graphic or they see this text on the screen that says, Duke Nukem 3D will be back really, really soon. I bet you that gamers everywhere were so excited because that sequel would be coming out real soon, except that never happened. It did not come out real soon. The sequel to Duke Nukem 3D was Duke Nukem Forever, which would be stuck in development hell forever uh, over 10 years. I think it almost reached 15-ish years in development. So many people believed that it would never exist. Duke Nukem Forever actually has or had the Guinness World Record for the longest development time for any game. It just recently got beaten by, I think it was Beyond Good and Evil 2, which has now surpassed the 15-ish years that Duke Nukem Forever was in development hell, which is crazy that it could be that much time spent developing the game. Duke Nukem Forever, though, did eventually come out in 2011. That was after a number of restarts, engine changes, graphical overhauls, companies closing, 3D Realms as a company closed, Gearbox ultimately had to step in and purchase the Duke Nukem IP and eventually release it themselves. And when Duke Nukem Forever came out, it was pretty badly skewered by the gaming community as well as the gaming press. I do want to say, I think Duke Nukem Forever got a little bit of a bad rap. I recently replayed Duke Nukem Forever, or more accurately, I recently went back and played through the whole game of Duke Nukem Forever. And I will say the first five, six levels were not really doing it for me. But as you go into the game and as you continue through the game, it's not bad. It's it's definitely, you could tell that Duke Nukem Forever was not the game that the developers wanted to create. And if it had released, if Duke Nukem Forever had released in 1998, let's say, even if the graphics weren't up to par, but if the general features of the game had released in 1998, it would probably be remembered as fondly as Half-Life or Half-Life 2. Maybe well, maybe not quite as much as Half-Life 2. That was <laughs> That's pretty darn close to like the pinnacle of first-person shooter gaming. But 
it would be remembered much more positively than what it is. I still think Duke Nukem Forever got a bad rap. I am generally speaking an easy grader, but I actually enjoyed playing the game. It felt okay. It had, I mean, it was totally crazy. The story was crazy, nonsensical, but they did a lot of interesting things with interactive environments and the games that were built in there, like pinball games and other kinds of arcade games and just different things. I thought they did an okay job for what they had. Now, granted, 15 years in development, you'd probably expect a lot more, but I think it got a little bit of a bad rap personally. Regardless, though, of how you feel about Duke Nukem Forever, Duke Nukem as a character and Duke Nukem 3D in particular was a landmark title in gaming history. That particular game is one that I doubt anybody will ever forget. We are now going to transition to the pseudo review portion of the discussion, and we're going to talk more specifically about what it feels like to play Duke Nukem 3D. So before we do that, I do just want to talk about the general structure of most first person shooters of the early to mid 90s. And we touched upon this a little bit before, but most of the time when a first person shooter would be released, they would release as episodic, meaning you would buy a game and if you bought the full retail release, you would have a game that typically would have three episodes, let's say, and they wouldn't really be connected all that well. It's not like most first person shooters of the time didn't really have a really strong story associated with it. It was much more just collections of levels that were excuses to blow things up. Uh, Duke Nukem 3D didn't really change that. They were also, or Duke Nukem 3D was also an episodic structure originally released with three episodes. Later, the Atomic Edition would get a fourth episode and the 20th anniversary edition would actually add a fifth episode to the game. And across its history or across its lifespan, there would also be additional expansion packs and standalone expansions added for Duke Nukem 3D, as well as some offshoots as well. But regardless, first person shooters of the time, they were mostly episodic, kind of light on story. The one, once again, that deviated there was Dark Forces, where it was more of a collection of sequential levels that had a pretty connected story. I mean, it still wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good for the time. Duke followed the more traditional first person shooter format of the early to mid 90s. So, but it did do some things that were different. And I want to touch upon some of these up front before we start talking about the specific elements of the game, like graphics and sound and things like that. The first thing that Duke did that really set itself apart from a lot of the other games of the time were they added items. And by items, I mean things that you could use at different points in the playthrough and also in multiplayer. There is multiplayer in Duke Nukem 3D. Um, I didn't actually try too much of the multiplayer portion for this particular podcast episode. I focused more so on the single player, but multiplayer is certainly a part of Duke Nukem 3D. Some of these items had better usage in the multiplayer version of the game versus the single player, but we'll talk about the items regardless. So there were a few items I want to call out or call special attention to. One of them was the Hollow Duke. Now, the Hollow Duke is one where you basically create a mirror image of yourself 
that would attract the attention of enemies. This is one where definitely in multiplayer, there's better applicability there than on the single player side. In multiplayer, I could totally see the Hollow Duke confusing some people and giving you an opportunity to to um, shoot your enemy or get the drop on your enemy a little bit. It was an interesting concept, though, just in general to have in the game. Uh, there's also the jetpack. We talked about this a little bit when we talked about the verticality of the levels. This one was a really interesting addition, and I really appreciated the fact that you could actually have a jetpack that would allow you to fly around the levels. The fuel was pretty limited in that you'd have to continue to find jetpacks if you wanted to keep using it. It felt like, and I'm not entirely sure if this is true, but it felt like there were some levels that absolutely required you to use the jetpack, which meant, I suppose, there were potentially situations where you could kind of get into a dead-end state. I could be wrong about that because there were some levels when I was playing through it where I didn't see any other way to progress other than using the jetpack. There very possibly could have been other secret areas or secret passages that would get you to the exit as well that I just didn't find. The jetpack itself, though, was an awesome item. It was It's great to be able to fly around and even float around and, and be able to shoot enemies from on high or fly around and actually have an in-flight battle with enemies. It was it was really well done and really interesting to add into a game like this. And if you played it at the time it was released, it would have felt like nothing you'd ever seen before. Nowadays you have some more of those kind of features in games, but back then, absolutely crazy to have as part of the game. There were also protective boots, which there were some areas where there were poison rivers or poison water protective boots would help protect you from that as the name would suggest and then there was night vision goggles which kind of sort of worked i don't know if there was an issue with my display or not but night vision in duke nukem 3d kind of lightened up the environment but it wasn't wasn't really all that much more visible than without it so once again that might have been just a setup thing on on my side. And there were some other items as well like med packs that you could actually carry around or steroids which would increase your overall speed and things like that. So there were other items in there and I thought it was interesting that items were added to the game because a lot of the games or a lot of the first person shooters specifically at the time didn't really have usable items that you could carry around. You could certainly pick up items from the ground like ammo packs and things like that but wouldn't necessarily have usable items that you're carrying in a sort of interface kind of thing. I also want to talk about the weapon variety in the game and this is one where there is such a focus on weapon variety, and when you play this game, when you play Duke Nukem 3D, you almost have to utilize all of your weapons if you're going to be successful. Now, this is one of those areas where when I was playing the game, and just to give you a little bit of insight into how I typically play first-person shooters, I'm the kind of guy that tries to save almost any kind of special ammo for what I believe will be a main boss or some really difficult content that I'm assuming is going to eventually come up in the game. So what that means is that when I play through a game, typically, I will try to use almost exclusively the pistol weapon, because the assumption is the lower quality the weapon is, the more ready or the more readily available the ammo will be. So a lot of times I will try to use the pistol, and I will almost always try to use the shotgun, because the shotgun a lot of times has the best bang for your buck. The ammo is usually pretty available, and shotguns just make absolute mincemeat of anything that's in front of you. So a lot of times when I play through first-person shooters, 
I rely on the pistol and I rely on the shotgun. And then occasionally I'll use other weapons if there's a special situation that requires it. But I try to save those other special weapons and special ammo types for really challenging encounters or the thought that there will be a really challenging encounter. Most of the time what ends up happening is I end up hoarding all of those weapons and ammo until the end game and I just kind of use it all on the final boss of the game because I'm just one of those, (laughs) I just have that hoarder mentality when it comes to weapons and items in games. So that's how I was starting to play Duke Nukem 3D when I was playing through it just recently and I wasn't really having much success. It's not that the shotgun is bad, but it's not as overpowered as what you have in a lot of games. Uh, Similar with the pistol, it's just, there's some enemies that are real bullet sponges out there, and I was having a tough time. It was pretty darn difficult as I was playing through the game until I started to really leverage all of the different weapon types out there, and there's a ton of weapons, and they're all very uh, innovative as far as what they they can do. So there's things like the um, expander, which I believe was in the atomic edition. I don't know that that was in the base game, but the expander, basically you shoot an enemy and it kind of explodes out there, uh, which was kind of awesome. They had the devastator, which was like dual wielded rocket launchers. Um, they had of course a typical RPG rocket launcher kind of gun. They had a shrink ray or a shrink gun kind of thing that you could then shrink enemies and go up and step on them. So there were a lot of different interesting weapons out there, much broader than just the traditional kind of shotgun, chain gun, BFG kind of setup that a lot of first person shooters would have. I really came to appreciate the weapon variety as I played through the game. Because, like I said, I'm not usually one to to use a ton of different weapons other than very special situations. But Duke Nukem 3D kind of makes you do it. Because if you don't, you're going to have a real tif- real difficult time working through some of the levels. So before we get into the rest of the discussion on the review, as we typically do, I do like to look at what the back of the box says. Duke Nukem 3D came out around a time where there were much more available information or there was much more available information around magazines. And we started to get into the whole internet experience where you started to be able to get some information from the internet at that time. So not quite as needed as what you might've had with some of the other games we've talked about that were released earlier in the nineties. But I always like looking at the back of the box because I don't know, I just find it interesting, especially because nowadays computer games don't come in boxes anymore, which is one of those things that I sorely miss. I love big boxes for computer games and the touchies or the feelies or whatever you call them that come in them. I really enjoy having all of those extras. Regardless, let's look at what the back of the box for Duke Nukem 3D says. So at the top of the box, there are some quotes from various magazines talking about how Duke is simply the hottest PC game of the year by X-Gen Magazine. PC Gamer says it's the ultimate game for unleashing all your pent-up aggression. It is the most astonishing game we've laid eyes on for ages. It makes pretty much every PC game we've ever seen, Doom included, look slightly dull, honestly. Wow, pretty big praise for Duke Nukem 3D. Now, the box itself has a ton of words, so I'm just going to pick out excerpts here because we'll be reading forever but the main features prepare yourself for the ultimate 3d slugfest murderous aliens have landed in futuristic los angeles and the humans suddenly find themselves atop the endangered species list the odds are a million to one just the way duke likes it butt kicking features include 
realistic 3D scenarios with 28 totally realistic levels that you can drive the sinister aliens through the streets of LA out to an orbiting station and onto the surface of the moon itself. Leading edge build 3D technology. That's the build engine that we talked about. Armed to the teeth with 10 high-tech weapons. Clear crowds with the pump-action assault shotgun. Blast their enemies in walls with the rocket-propelled grenade. Splat enemies underfoot after blasting them with the shrinker and a number of other weapons like we were talking about. Full movement control lets you run, jump, crawl, swim, and jetpack your way through hostile environments as you look up and down. That's right, there is mouse look in the game. Uh, death dealing, or at least mouse look was was included in Atomic Edition. I don't know if it was included in the base edition, but we'll talk about that. Death dealing duke match, not death match, duke match, lets you duke it out one-on-one via modem. That's a technology that you don't really hear about much anymore and enables up to eight player battle fests over your network. Also send pre-recorded cutdowns via Duke's remote ridicule system. That sounds awesome. Total Pentium support with advanced options like high-res SVGA graphics that add detail and realism and dynamic moving real-time shadows. You can build your own levels. There is parental password protection, and you can get the two original Duke Nukem games plus five of the hottest shareware titles for free. The future of 3D gaming will never be the same. That is pretty high expectations that that box sets. We'll see if that actually lives up to the hype when we start talking about the game a little bit more detail now. And we're going to start talking about the review portion. And we're going to talk about the few different categories that we typically talk about. So graphics, sound and music, narrative and story, playability and controls, and then the overall feel. To start with graphics, for the time, the time that this game was released, the graphics looked amazing. Super realistic worlds in comparison to what else was out there. The the SVGA graphics in particular looked really nice if you had a system that can play it well or play it with a high enough frame rate to really feel immersed in the world. Today, uh, they don't hold up quite as well. They're kind of pixely. I did play the original Atomic Edition on original hardware, not any of the re-releases. So take this for what it is, which is a discussion of the true original software on original hardware. It's kind of pixely if you look at it from today's perspective. The real-world locations, however, were completely awesome. They were unlike other FPSs of the time. Even today, it feels great walking around the game world and exploring the real world places like the movie theaters where you'd actually have movies playing on the screen, which I thought was absolutely awesome. Bars, restaurants, office buildings, a ton of other locations. The graphics, while pixelated today, certainly ooze style. The world itself is very well designed There are ramps, like we talked about, with the sloped floors, the verticality, which was crazy for the time. I remember one level in particular where you're literally standing on the edge of a cliff, and you look out, and you see what appears to be like a distant window way far across this this hole or chasm in the ground. And I happened to have some jetpack fuel at the time. 
So I figured, well, let's see if I can get over there. I hit the jetpack. I went flying right over there and I landed right into that window. And I was just like, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> this just feels so cool. Other FPSs around that time just didn't have that kind of thing. I also really enjoyed the fact that there were destructive environments Sort of. I mean, they were kind of heavily telegraphed. It's not like a game like Red Faction, where you have the ability to destroy a lot of environments. Granted, Red Faction came later than Duke Nukem 3D, but there was destructibility in the environments for Duke Nukem 3D. Most of the time when you would have something that was destructible, there would be a crack in the wall and you'd see that you could shoot it with a grenade or blow it up with a mine or something and, and you'd be able to get into a secret area or open up a shortcut to other areas of the level. So I did enjoy that. I thought that was great that they had that degree of, of destruction in there. And I believe that the destructive environments and the way that they designed some of the, some of the levels really facilitated the death matches or Duke matches for multiplayer. Once again, I didn't play the multiplayer for this particular episode. So I'm focused primarily on the single player experience. Moving on to sound and music, the music for Duke Nukem 3d is 100% iconic, and it remains iconic to this day. I bet you, if you played Duke Nukem 3D back when you were younger, a kid, or if you were an adult even back then, and you played the game, I bet you, at a minimum, you can probably hum the Duke Nukem 3D theme song on cue. I could probably say, hum the Duke Nukem 3D song, and you would be able to start going like, it's just iconic. It's, <laughs> I loved that sound when I played it when I was younger. I still love it playing it through today. doesn't matter. 25 years later, it is still just an amazing song. And all the music in Duke Nukem 3D was absolutely awesome. The... Uh, the cover song or the the main theme was actually covered by Megadeth at one point. If you listen to that version, that version is also awesome. The in-game music really makes sense, especially when you compare it or when you uh, combine it with the action and it complements the world very well. One of the other things I liked too is that as you walk around the game world and you explore different locations, there is some location-specific music that will play as well. It all just works really well and really comes together from a sound perspective and sound effects standpoint. I think they work really well. The aliens all sound distinct. Some of them are really, really irritating and they have sounds to match, which I mean, just, you know, some enemies in games are just really frustrating to deal with. And when you hear the noise that comes along with them, you just kind of take a step back and say, Oh no, not again, not another one of these guys. And I'm sure that everybody has their own personal opinions around some enemies that are absolutely awful to deal with. But the sound effects and the the way that they built that into the game, they work. It works really well. And of course, you can't talk about sound without talking about John St. John's portrayal of Duke Nukem, which is, like we were saying earlier, just it's a performance that nobody is ever going to forget. Everybody who has played Duke Nukem knows what Duke Nukem sounds like. And that is a testament to John St. John's performance in the game. Moving on to the narrative and story. Uh, narrative's kind of thin. There is a story there, sort of. But it's not like this game is trying to tell this epic tale of revenge and uh, saving the world and things like that. Yes, 
that is part of the game. And there is a thin narrative that connects the levels to a degree. But man, this is not, it's not an RPG. This is not something where you're going to play it for the story. You're playing to basically blow stuff up. The game exists for you to blow stuff up. And speaking of which, the act of playing the game is basically all about blowing stuff up using a variety of weapons. And the weapons, like we talked about before, are pretty darn awesome. They're great weapons, a great variety to have in the game. The controls themselves, a little bit of a mixed bag. I did mention that, at least in the Atomic Edition, Mouse Look was was able to be enabled. And back then, Mouse Look kind of, sort of worked. We should talk a little bit real quickly about the way most first-person shooters handled targeting back back at this time. So in a modern first-person shooter, you have location-specific damage where you can go for a headshot, and if you, if you aim and shoot at the head, typically you do a lot more damage than if you shot, say, to the body or to the leg or the arm or whatever. Some games, like Soldier of Fortune, take it up to another level where they have fully modeled bodies that have multiple spots for location-specific damage and tons of gore and things like that. But that's the way most modern, I'll say from like 2000-ish, the year 2000-ish on, that's the way a lot of first-person shooters have been designed. Back in the early 90s, early to mid-90s, it wasn't really designed like that because mouse look wasn't pervasive yet. When you would navigate a world, you would navigate primarily with the keyboard, maybe keyboard or mouse, but it wasn't like you were looking up and down and all around in 3D space with the mouse. It was basically just enabling you to look around a little bit. So when you would fire in a specific direction, it didn't matter whether you were aiming up or down. If you were firing straight, it would basically say, okay, if you're firing towards an enemy, you could still hit that enemy even if you're not purely targeted at that enemy. So Mouse Look started to get introduced, and a version of Mouse Look was included in Duke Nukem 3D, and it worked okay. I mean, you could tell that it was an early version of Mouse Look. Like I said, you can certainly play the game with just pure keyboard controls, which is how I originally played it back when it came out in the mid-90s, but you can really tell that you're playing an earlier first-person shooter. The controls work, but they are nothing like how smooth gameplay can be today with a modern first-person shooter. And the mouse look itself was limited a bit, especially if you're trying to look up and down. It's it's not a true, at least it didn't feel like a true 3D representation of mouse look. The distortion was just kind of weird as you looked around with the field of view and things like that. It wasn't a true 3D projection as many modern games are. Overall, though, you can tell This is an older first-person shooter. And I got to say, some game genres, when you look at the older titles, the more classic kind of titles, some game genres are really tough to look at because some genres have had a ton of advancements in, in just technology and the way that they've been developed. There are some genre that just hold up today because they just work without regard for newer technologies and things like that. So think about Lemmings, our first episode from the podcast. Puzzle platform-ish kind of game. That style, the way Lemmings was designed, it can work whether it's released today or 30 years ago. It doesn't matter because technology-wise, there's really not much that technology could help to increase the playability of the original version of the game. First-person shooters have evolved dramatically 
from the point that they were originally introduced and really have evolved beyond what you see in games like Duke Nukem 3D, which were awesome for the time. But just if you compare them to today, there's a lot of things that are missing that a lot of us take for granted when we play a first-person shooter in 2022. The graphics can sound totally fine. I mean, they they worked. The sound in particular I thought was awesome. The music was amazing. The pop culture references that were included in the game, they were still amusing today. Even knowing what they were, having experienced the game before, they were still amusing. Duke Nukem was Duke Nukem. I mean, iconic character. I know I use the word iconic a lot with this game, but it truly is. It is truly an iconic experience. Duke was Duke, and Duke is awesome. The controls, when compared to modern games, especially even if you look at some of the modern games that are retro-inspired, but based on modern technology, the controls aren't the best uh, today in comparison to those games. And and I do just want to say that Even just navigating or the feel of navigating the world felt a little aged to me. Um, I know that many people might think otherwise, but for me, it was just, there's definitely some aging with this game. I did have a great time playing it, mostly. I do want to say, though, the game was pretty difficult, especially before I started to utilize the full arsenal of my weapons. After I started to do that, the game was still tough, but it became a lot more manageable. So, what is our final verdict? Does Duke Nukem 3D take its place in the pantheon of classic gaming? I'm going to say this is a tough one. This is a real tough one for me. Because Duke Nukem 3D is undeniably an important piece of gaming history. But if I look at it from the lens of what we're trying to do with this podcast, which is seeing how well games that were released yesterday still perform and feel today, there are definitely some elements that did not age all that well. So for me, Duke Nukem 3D is a golden oldie. You should play it. If you haven't played it before, you should play it to see what all the fuss is about. You're going to mostly have a good time. If you have played it and you have nostalgia for it, yeah, go back and play it again. It's Duke Nukem 3D, man. I mean, what what can't you like or what won't you like about it? It's still a great game. It is still an incredibly important game in gaming history. But it is not one of those games that feels as good to play today as what it did in 1996. There have been far too many advances in the genre, and this was way too early of a game released in the first-person shooter genre's history for it to be able to age that gracefully. It is still a great game, it's just not one that I can universally recommend to someone who may have never played it. You should, you should play it, but if you do and you've never played it before and you're not ready for a true retro first-person shooter, you may not have as fun of a time as what others who have some nostalgia for it for or would. Uh, If you're not used to that style of gameplay that was prevalent in classic first-person shooters, you might be in for a little bit of a rough time. Now, there have been multiple re-releases and refined versions of Duke Nukem 3D, and you might have better mileage with that. I still recommend you play the game or experience the game in some capacity. The very, very original version of the game, though, has not aged quite as well as uh, some other games. And for that reason, for me... Duke Nukem 3D 
is a quintessential golden oldie. That was our episode on Duke Nukem 3D. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. As always, if you want to give me advice, feedback, comments, you want to talk about the games we've talked about or the games we haven't yet or give suggestions for future games, I am available on social media. On Twitter, I have the handle at ClassicGamingT, and I do have an email address, ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. So please feel free to reach out. I I love talking about games and classic technology and all that good stuff. If you want to talk about it as well, I'm here. Let's have a discussion. The next episode for this podcast is going to be focused on the platform cinematic adventure game Out of This World or Another World, depending on what part of the world you live in. If you want to share your thoughts and experiences about that game, feel free to write in. I will definitely read any comments that I get and you may actually make it onto the show. So feel free to write in if you have some ideas or feedback around out of this world or another world, once again, depending on where you are in this world. Uh, Hopefully everybody is enjoying this podcast. If you want to, I would love it if you left a review on your podcast service of choice. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about trying to trick algorithms into making other people listen to the podcast. I'm just legitimately interested in hearing what you all think. My goal is to create the best podcast possible. To do that, I need all of your feedback to make sure that I am delivering the best content that I can possibly do and making the podcast that you all want to listen to. We are still growing. We are still developing this community. We're still pretty early on. This is only episode six of what will hopefully be a long running podcast, but I am definitely interested in hearing what everybody thinks. I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. We will be back in around a week with Out of This World. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.